Hey, Park Church, I hope you're well. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 today. So if you want to make your way to Matthew chapter 5 in a Bible, that would be wonderful. Uh, before we get into this passage, just a couple of things I want to acknowledge. First of all, I'm very aware that we are currently under a stay-at-home order, both in the city of Denver and broadly across the state of Colorado. And so we're praying for you all in that situation. Um, Governor Polis and Mayor Hancock have given us permission as churches to come to our buildings, to record services, to send out uh, to our congregations. And so um, hopefully as you receive this in your home, uh, yeah, it'll be a blessing to you. Um, I was a little bit encouraged to think about the state saying that the church is an essential piece of what people need in a time of quarantine. But then you stop and you think about it, and that was right alongside also the essentials of liquor stores and marijuana dispensaries. So this is Denver's version of the quarantine essentials, and whatever you might think about all of that, it's an interesting thing to consider. Um, I don't want to make light of the realities of the situation that we're in. It's a really complicated and challenging and difficult time for so many. Uh, to think about what's happening broadly across our world and in our city with a lot of people who are very sick because of this virus, people who have lost loved ones, uh, people who have lost jobs and taken salary reductions, and, uh, and also people that just feel just the psychological difficulties of being uh, asked and even ordered to stay in their homes. Uh, it's a challenging time. It's a bizarre time. And, uh, and so we're thinking about you. We're praying for you. But also Jesus cares about this. Um, Jesus cares about you. He cares about all the things you're feeling and you're walking through. And I think the things that he says in this passage, the words from Jesus we're going to look at in Matthew chapter 5 offer really, really good and very relevant news for those of us who are walking through this broken situation and however that might affect you. So we're going to pray together. We're going to ask Jesus for his words to penetrate our hearts and to remind us of his love and his presence with us in this time. So let's pray together. Um, Jesus, thank you for being with us. You promise that you are, you promise that you always will be. So even as we're scattered all around the city, um, would you remind individuals and households and roommates and families that you're with them, that you're with them, that you see them, that you know them, that you're paying attention, that you care deeply, that you're active and involved. And would you pour out grace? Would you have compassion on us and lead us to life? In your name we pray. Amen. One of the most foundational truths or convictions in American society is that we have the right to pursue happiness. And this was written into the Declaration of Independence. The first sentence of the second paragraph says, We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So our founders in this country thought that the pursuit of happiness was a basic human right. And I would say it probably goes even deeper than that. It was the 17th century French philosopher Blaise Pascal who said this. He said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. What Blaise Pascal was saying is that every human being has a vision of the, of the kind of life that will give them 
happiness. And though we might have different versions of that life or different versions of that vision, we are all ultimately and always steering our life towards that end. We are trying and bending our will and bending our agency to get this version of life that we believe will give us happiness. And so the question we have to ask is, what is true happiness and where does it actually come from? What is true happiness and where does it actually come from? Because you have a version of that that you're living by. In fact, our our whole culture is governed by a certain version of it. For most people in our society, we tend to think of happiness as a positive feeling that comes when we have a a good situation. And so the way to increase your happiness is to improve your situation in life, to improve your circumstances, to try to have what people would call a blessed life. If you have this blessed life, which is defined by positive circumstances, then you have more reason or a greater reason to be truly happy. But then what happens in a situation like this when the things that we've been building and accumulating and building our life upon begin to shake? Uh, What happens when there's a virus that's spreading like wildfire across the face of the earth and hundreds of thousands have been infected and tens of thousands have died and so many have lost loved ones? There are so many who are facing fears and anxieties, both about the physical threats, but also the financial implications from stay-at-home orders and the precautions that we're all taking to try to protect those in our community. Um, These implications are shaking us in so many ways. You have 3 million people, over 3 million people now that have applied for unemployment uh, in our country alone. You have hundreds of thousands of people who have taken substantial salary cuts. Um, These things are shaking us. And, And as they shake us and as they shake our circumstances, does that mean that our reason for happiness is also shaken? In this passage, we're going to see that Jesus is offering really a totally different approach to happiness. Uh, Ultimately, what we'll see is that his approach to happiness isn't contingent on our circumstances at all. Uh, His version of happiness comes through a different kind of kingdom into a different type of people and ultimately is found in a different type of king. And so what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at those observations. We're going to look at Jesus' teaching, how he teaches us about a different kind of kingdom, how he teaches us that his kingdom is for a different kind of people, and it comes through a whole different kind of king. And so I want us to see this in the passage. If, again, if you have your Bible, open up. We're in Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read the first verse here, and we'll talk about the setting a little bit. It says this, Now seeing the crowds, he, speaking of Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Um, When Matthew kind of frames the Sermon on the Mount, which is what this section of Scripture is called, when he frames the Sermon on the Mount with this setting, it's really important because the original readers would have kind of seen this image of Jesus going up on a mountain and inviting his disciples and these crowds to follow him. And as they follow him up on the mountain and sit down and he begins to teach them, it would have reminded them about the story of the people of Israel from their very beginning when they were out in the wilderness And Moses and the elders of Israel went up on the mountain and God instructed them with the nature of his kingdom. And it's right there in the middle of Exodus as God gives the instructions for the nature of the kingdom of God to the people of Israel. When we see Jesus walking through the same basic pattern, he's up on the mountain. His disciples and the crowds follow him and they sit down and he begins to teach them. What he's teaching them about is the the good news of his kingdom and the nature of his kingdom says this in chapter 4, that he was going around proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom or telling everybody about the good news of the kingdom and teaching them about it. And the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew's way of framing the, the teachings of Jesus about the nature of the kingdom. And it's, it's a wholly different kind 
of kingdom. The people that were following Jesus had a conception of what the kingdom of God was like and where true life was found and what it meant to be a part of God's kingdom. And frankly, the people who are following Jesus were not the winners in the kingdom that they understood. They were the hurting and they were the ostracized and they were the ones that felt like they were the outsiders in the kingdom. And Jesus is offering them a whole different way. And we also have a an understanding of what the kingdom is like, what, what kind of kingdom would give true life. We have an understanding of what that would be. And it really is kind of governed and cultivated through the, the ways and the values that we've absorbed from the culture around us. We have an understanding that true life, true happiness is found when we progress in our life, that our goal is to kind of go up into the right of life, that we continue to kind of live our life and we make progress and we improve our lifestyle and we improve our situation. And as we improve our lifestyle, as we improve our situation, then we have more and more reason to be happy. And that's not Jesus's approach to happiness at all. It's not Jesus's approach to joy. The kingdom he offers is, is a whole different system. It's a whole different system. That conception that if we can continue to build our own kingdom with our own strength and our own resources, and we can try to build paradise on our own, then it will give us happiness. That's a myth that doesn't actually work. And so when we see right now the earth shaking and the kind of foundations that we've relied on, the structures we build our lives on, when we feel them shaking, what we're feeling again is the shakable things shaking. But Jesus' kingdom, where true happiness is found, is not a shakable kingdom. Nothing that shakes in this life shakes the kingdom of God. And as the the world around us shakes, we have this opportunity to look to find joy and happiness in a different kind of kingdom. And and the way that we're going to see this in this passage is Jesus offering that kingdom to a different kind of people. Um, It's really fascinating, this word that's going to be repeated throughout this passage, this word blessed. Um, The word blessed is a a powerful word here because it's actually talking about um, somebody who's in an advantageous situation. So the people who are blessed are people that are in an advantageous situation or um, they're the fortunate ones or they're in a situation that gives a reason to actually have happiness and joy. But it's pretty remarkable when you start looking through the blessings that a lot of the the things that are described are are challenging situations, Uh, situations where there's loss and grief and brokenness and powerlessness. So how is it that Jesus is connecting happiness or true happiness with really painful and difficult circumstances. And and in the passage, what we'll see is he's actually not connecting happiness to the painful circumstance, but he's connecting happiness to the things that those in those challenging, the people in those challenging circumstances are given in the kingdom. So even just like look at the, the word here that's repeated all throughout, this little word in the midst of each of these blessings, the word for. When he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. He's not saying that being poor in spirit is a reason to be happy in itself. He's saying that those who are poor in spirit have a reason to be happy. And the reason is not their poverty. The reason is that in their poverty, in their, whether it's economic poverty or their spiritual poverty, they are given the kingdom of God. And that's gonna be the case all the way through, that the the advantageous situation is not the pain that we walk through, it's not the challenges and it's not the darkness and it's not the brokenness. It's that when we face the brokenness, when we face the challenges, when we're honest about the grief and when we're hungry for God in that place, those are the ones for whom the kingdom of God and all of its glory and all of its abundance and all of its joy flows freely and beautifully. And it's really a powerful thing. And so what I want us to do is kind of look at 
these blessings kind of in a few different categories and see how how these situations, sometimes really painful situations, give us really beautiful blessings as we consider the unshakable nature of Jesus's kingdom. And so the first thing I want us to see is that the kingdom of God is coming to the people who are empty and brokenhearted and powerless and hungry. And this is the first four Beatitudes. Um, The first one which talks about being poor in spirit is talking about just our emptiness, that we feel depleted, we feel like we don't have any reason to boast in our own accomplishments, to boast in our own possessions, to boast in our own spiritual prowess, to boast in our own achievements or, or our victories. We actually feel in, in significant ways like we've failed at certain things or we have deep regrets or deep sense of loss. And in the midst of that position of feeling empty, like there's nothing we have to bring to offer, look at all the things I've accomplished and done, we actually feel broken. We find ourselves in need, in a place of desperation. And it's in that place of desperation when we feel like that the system of this world isn't giving me the joy and I have no agency and I have no power and I have no ability to kind of like make my life the, the, the joyful life that I long for. I'm in desperate need for someone to help me. In that place of spiritual poverty, uh, that we find ourselves ready to embrace the beauty of a different kind of kingdom. A kingdom that can't be shaken by our economic situation, a kingdom that can't be shaken by our failures and our regrets and our past, a kingdom that's secured by the love of God on our behalf. And so when it talks about the the blessedness of those who mourn, it's those who are honest about the brokenness and grieve it in their own life and in the world around them. When it says blessed are the meek, it's those who have no power to change their situation. When it says blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, it's those who are desperate for the world to be made right, desperate for themselves to be right with God and to be right with others and for God to make all things new. It's not those who have accomplished all of these wonderful things and are righteous in their own strength. It's those that are hungry for God to make the world right. The kingdom of God is flowing to the brokenhearted. It's flowing to the people that are honest about the pain. It's flowing to people that feel like they don't have a power to fix their situation. It's it's flowing to people who feel desperate and hungry for God to move. And so in the midst of challenging situations, when you feel broken and you've made mistakes and you feel deep regrets and you're scared about the future and you're hungry for someone to help, uh, that's the situation where God says you have every reason to be happy. You have every reason for joy because the kingdom of God and all of its abundance, and all of its beauty, and all of its satisfying joy is yours. It's available to you as you look to Jesus and turn to him. He's offering a whole new way of life, and it's a beautiful thing. The second thing he's showing is that the kingdom of God brings joy to the merciful, to the pure-hearted, and the peacemakers. This next section, I think it's a really, really significant thing, and it's going to be a theme all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, that the kingdom of God is is not for those who have conformed their external lives to some system of rules and behaviors and practices. That the kingdom of God isn't coming to the kind of religious elite like the people in this setting would have thought. They would have thought the kingdom of God, the people that are the greatest in the kingdom and are loved the most by God are the kind of spiritual winners and the people who know the Bible the best and the people who follow all the rules perfectly and the people who conform all their lives to these kind of cultural norms. And Jesus is always looking at the internal life. He's always looking at at the character. And so he says, the ones who have every reason to be blessed are those who have mercy on others. Not those who know every kind of aspect of theology and who can answer all the questions right and who follow all the rules perfectly, but who have hearts of kindness and hearts of compassion 
and hearts of love. It says, blessed are the pure in heart. That's not saying people that are pure all the time and, and never have wrong motives and, and never do the wrong thing and are always pure in all of their actions. It's actually talking more about internally. They're very honest. They're very pure in their, in their essence, meaning they're honest about who they truly are before God. They're not duplicitous. They're not hypocritical. They're very aware of their brokenness and honest about their brokenness before God and before others. Um, that they're they are them true, their true selves before God. And it's saying that, that approach to life, when you're honest about where you really are and you're not pretending and you're not just conforming your external life, but you're honest about really where you are. It says those are the ones who see God. Those are the ones who receive mercy. Those are the ones who get to taste the beauty of God. And it says blessed are the peacemakers, are the ones who actually embody the restorative love of God as they approach others in, in this world, as we go as those who seek reconciliation with people, as those who want to see people reconciled to God and the world restored. As you approach the world with that sort of kindness, that kind of humility, that kind of desire, God says you embody his very characteristics. He says they will be called the children of God the people who reflect the character of their father with his kindness and his mercy and his desire to restore and bring reconciliation to all things. These are the ones for whom the kingdom of God flows. And it has nothing to do with all of the things you can accomplish or accumulate or achieve or win. It has to do with humbling your heart before God, acknowledging your brokenness, acknowledging your need and moving out into the world with, with kindness and compassion and humility and hope. But then it kind of takes a little shift as it jumps into the last one. It's blessed are those who are reviled and persecuted. It's when you actually approach life by that. When you say, I'm done with the game of culture. I'm done with trying to play this game of seeking happiness through accomplishments and accumulation and through my own sense of power and gaining the praise of people. When you're, when you're done with that game, you say that game, that approach to life and happiness does not work. It's left me empty and broken. It's left me feeling kind of alone and isolated, when, when you say no to that game and you actually embrace the nature of God's unshakable kingdom and his unshakable love, and you embody that with boldness and with faithfulness and with love in this world, it does lead to opposition. It does lead to challenges. Jesus doesn't promise that your circumstances will improve or that life will get easier and easier. He actually promises all over his teachings that it will lead to challenges. As you live your life by a different system, it challenges the fabric of this culture, ultimately in a way that brings light to the world, light into the darkness, but a way that will lead to opposition. When you feel ridiculed by your coworkers, when you feel ostracized by family members who think you're naive, uh, when you walk into this world with a faithfulness to God, which, which leads you to a place of actually taking losses and showing forgiveness and showing mercy to people and, and contending for healthy things, for the flourishing of other people, uh, when you do that and there's opposition, Jesus says you still have every reason to be happy. When the circumstances around you feel like they're struggling and it feels like following Jesus hasn't led to kind of a, an improved lifestyle. You have every reason to be happy, he says, because your reward is great in the kingdom of heaven. That he sees you and that every loss and every affliction and every persecution and every word of ridicule is working for you an eternal weight of glory that's far beyond all comparison. And how do we know this? How can we actually be confident in this? It's because we have a different kind of king. We have a different kind of king. All throughout this whole passage, you can see these characteristics of the people of God's kingdom, but they really are the characteristics of the king, of the king who embodies this kind of full beauty 
of God. And as we consider the nature of this king, you see this one who is despised and rejected. You see this one who had no kind of like beauty or majesty in his physical appearance, who came with humility, who came in poverty, who entered into the brokenness and experienced the pain, who grieved the losses and the brokenness of the world around him, who who looked to others with compassion and tenderness, who contended for human flourishing, even when that meant confronting unjust structures and systems. And he walked through this world, embracing that pain and that brokenness, showing love and kindness and tenderness and hope as he was faithful to God and serving others. And he took that posture all the way up another hill, all the way up another hill where he carried the cross And he laid down his life as a servant. He laid down his life with humility and with sacrificial love. And he took upon himself the brokenness of this world that was caused by human rebellion. And he died for our sins. And it's because Jesus took this servant posture. It's because Jesus took that posture all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. That God says he is highly exalted. That he's received this name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's the one who was willing to descend to the lowest depths that actually has the greatest joy. It was for the joy set before him that he endured all of the pain, all of the mocking, all of the shame, all of the brokenness, all of the challenges, all of the difficulty. He did it all for the sake of joy. Not his joy alone, but he did it all for our joy. And when we look to that different kind of king, and we look at not merely his life and his death, but his resurrection and his promise that he's coming again to make all things new, then we truly do have every reason for happiness, every reason for joy. And that's a kind of joy that is unshakable. And we're praying for that for you in this season. We're we're hoping in Jesus with you in this season. And we really believe that he can give us a kind of joy that doesn't just fill us up with hope, but it's a kind of hope that we can then spread to those around us. And so we want to encourage you to take time and pray about these things, that we live for a different kind of kingdom, and we look to a different kind of king, and that we would be in this world um, those who represent his love and his character. And so pray about those things. We also encourage you to take communion, to remember the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so we have instructions for that on the website, but take time, spend time in prayer, spend time around the table, and, and we'll be praying for you. And let me pray for you now, even as you go. Um, Jesus, we're grateful for your love and your faithfulness to us, for your kindness and your compassion. We're grateful for your humility and for your constant pursuit of us, your faithfulness to us. Would you remind us even now that you're with us? Would you pour out grace all around the city to show us the beauty of your kingdom, to remind us of your unshakable love, and to unleash us all around this place as people who can bring hope and light into a world who's hungry and desperate for you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.